0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Good morning. It's good to be with you again, again this morning. We're going to continue in Galatians 4. Uh, where we left off last week, our verses, as Brother Jesus read, from 12 to 20. Let's review briefly the context. Paul's purpose with this letter is to dissuade the Galatian believers from submitting to the false religion of the Judaizers. As we've talked about, and actually, Paul, Paul, like Pastor Mike says, it, he, he really beats this dead horse. He drives this point home again and again. There's not as much... Necessarily theological development or other ideas. He has one main point and that's because this is at the heart of the gospel. He had shared the good news with the Galatians and and they had received it with joy and they had received him with honor and what was that good news? That through Jesus Christ you can become part of the people of God. After he had returned home from his missionary journey there in what's present day modern Turkey uh, some other folks had come in some people with a background in Judaism, and they said, well, it's good that you're in the people of God now, but you have to do all these things. You must get circumcised, which is to identify with the Jewish people, and you must follow the Mosaic law, which is to say you must follow all these rules. And if you don't do that, then you're not really within the people of God. And so, as we've talked about, this is a major conflict And what is the good news about? How do we become in Christ? Do we have to do a bunch of things? That's by works. Or is it by faith, simply trusting that what Jesus has done is good enough for us? That when God sees us, when he looks at us, he sees us in Christ. So Paul's purpose is to prevent his fledgling flocks of believers there in the Galatian region from adopting this false religion. So that's the context of the letter and he's been pounding along, driving this point home again and again in different angles. And suddenly he takes a little moment in these verses to make a personal appeal. There's not as much of the emphasis on, on his message there, but he's saying, you and I have a good relationship. It's not like these other people, they have bad motives. They're not in it for your good. You and I have a good relationship. And and you've always trusted me. And the message that I have you received with joy. So You can continue to trust me as I speak these hard truths to you. So that's the first point of context. The second point of context is the cultural milieu or setting of that period. In our culture, historically speaking at least in the West, we have more of a guilt-innocence framework where people's value and standing is based on do you follow the rules and you're accountable to the rules and you are either innocent or guilty. There's mechanisms for uh, making right if you've done something wrong, you serve time, or you pay restitution, things like that. In an honor-shame culture, such as the context in which the Bible was written, both the Old and the New Testament, it's more about identity. It's more collectivistic. Do you have honor within the group, or do you have shame within the group? Are you in an elevated position, or are you in a lower position? And within this honor-shame core cultural paradigm, there was a competition. It was usually conceived of as a competition for honor. In order to gain honor, someone else would have to be put down. Or if someone was put down, perhaps, then perhaps you would gain honor. So as a competition. The way we might think of it is winners and losers. Are you a winner in society or are you a loser in society? So those are the two cultural... The two points of context. Uh, Summarizing this passage is a personal appeal based on relationship. And I want to draw your attention to two key verses. Verse 12, he starts right off the bat Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. And this verb, this word become, is a key idea flowing throughout this passage. What has Paul become? what does he want the Galatians to become in relationship to each other? How is, how is their relationship changing and how does that affect their identity? The second verse is verse 19, and this gives us the point that Paul is driving towards. And he slips it in there. Verse 19, he says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. And this is the phrase I want to draw your attention to. Until Christ is formed in you. And this is Paul's life purpose. And consequently, it's also his purpose for writing this letter. And it's hopefully the purpose for which we live in relation to every other person in our life until Christ is formed in you. That should be our object, that should be our primary driving purpose in our lives. For the formation of Christ, both in ourselves and in those we are in relationship with. So let's get into the text in verse 12. The first few verses talk about Paul and the Galatians' relationship, and he goes back into their history that they shared together. Historically, he says, they were unified. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. And this speaks to the unity and a shared identity when you think about becoming something, you're talking about a change in identity. And Paul elsewhere mentions that he becomes all things to all people so that by all means he might save some. And so Paul, as he journeyed from place to place in different cultural settings, speaking to those with um, a godly background, of the Jewish background, they had some understanding of God, To those, or depending on other contexts, a pagan background, he would adjust his behavior in things that were less important, culture issues, perhaps the way he dressed, uh, the things he ate, in order to reduce the barriers for people to hear the core message of the gospel. And so he had made these similar accommodations for the Galatians as well when he came and brought them the message. And so he says, then, become as I am. Now, what is this identity that Paul is inviting them to adopt, to become? And that is in Christ. Whereas previously, Paul had taken, perhaps, most likely, very great pride in his both ethnic and religious and zealous training and identity. He said, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day. He had all the cred when it came to being a Jewish person. He was a top-notch Pharisee. He was very strict. That identity he throws away. And his identity that he holds on to now as he's writing to the Galatians is in Christ. And that is his soul focused. So, as, they be, as Paul invites them to become like him, as he became like them, this is an expression of unity. Let's be together in this. We have a good relationship. What... Characterizes this relationship between Paul and the Galatians. And the key feature is this idea of reciprocal blessing. It's an open handed exchange of blessing within the family of God. So he goes into some details. Continuing in verse 12, he says, You did me no wrong. Which is to say that in all the times that he was there with them, they always did the right thing by him. And they actually had the opportunity to do otherwise. He goes through the history of how he first came to share the gospel with them. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So, drawing back in that theme of honor and shame, probably having illness and the resulting weakness was a shameful condition. And he goes on further, continuing, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. So even as he's writing this letter sometime after, even after he knows how the Galatians feel about him, remembering his condition at that time, I, I can imagine that he felt, he felt bad to be a burden to them. And, and in the economy of God, he uses weakness as opportunities to make himself known. But in the worldly sense, he understands that when he showed up and he had this illness, whatever kind of illness it was, It was embarrassing. He was dependent. And for all purposes, they they could have easily just rejected him and said, there's this guy, he's saying these things, but really he's a loser. And there's that honor-shame language because he's sick and he's weak and he's he's dependent on us. But that's not how they received him. He said, I preached the gospel to you. He said he was burdened, but you did not disdain me You did not scorn me. Instead, you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ himself. And so when he talks about the Galatians receiving him, he's identifying himself with the message. Now, remember, Paul's main focus is not his status, and he's not reciting their personal history and all the honor that they gave him in order to boost himself in their eyes. His focus is you received the message. So as he says, you received me, that means he, they received what he was saying about Jesus. And they had wholeheartedly and excitedly received as hungry, starving people the good news of Jesus. And they understood, and that's why they treated him as an angel of God. Because he had God's message. As Christ himself, even. Because he was coming as an apostle to share the good news of Christ. What then has become of your blessedness? He continues in verse 15. And so, whereas previously they had had this relationship of mutual blessing and exchange of blessing, Paul had blessed them despite his weakness, despite his suffering. He was really having a difficult time when he showed up with the Galatians, and yet he chose to share the gospel, and God used that. So he blessed them with the good news. And they blessed him in return by giving him a warm welcome, receiving the message, and treating him with honor. And this was a wholehearted and loving exchange. And so he's saying, we've had this good relationship. What's what's happened to this blessedness? Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? So the blessing that Paul had given to them was to share the truth of the gospel. Some other folks that come in and muddy the waters and said, you have to do all these things in order to be acceptable before God. And Paul says, no. The same message that I shared with you at first, going back to chapter 1. If anybody preaches to you a gospel contrary to that which I first preached to you, let him be accursed. And so the first message, he says, it's the same thing. It's by grace. It's by faith alone. It's not by works. And he's saying, have I become your enemy by driving this point home? I told you the truth then, and you received it with joy. And I'm telling you the truth now. I'm not your enemy. We're on the same team. I'm in this for you and for your good. My message, as you remember, I was sharing the good news with you, even though I was laid up. My whole purpose in life is for your good and for the glory of God. Why would that change now that I'm saying things that you might not want to hear? Then he continues with a hyperbole to emphasize how greatly they trusted him. For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. This is a pretty graphic hyperbole, but it's to emphasize how much they trusted him. Anything that he asked them to do, they would be willing to do because they understood he was God's messenger. And so he's saying, it's still true. You can still trust me to the same extent, because I'm in this for your good. And now we're getting into a little bit of the theme of the next relationship that he's talking about. Verse 17, he contrasts their relationship, his and the Galatians' relationship, with the relationship that that they have with the Judaizers. And he talks about these false teachers. They make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, or exclude you, that you may make much of them. So the different translations translate this verb make much of in different ways. And I think they all come at different aspects or nuances of the verb. The NASB says eagerly seek. NIV says they want, to zealously, they want zealously to win you over. And I like the Nets translation that says they court you eagerly. And the idea is to be positively and intensely interested in something. To strive, to desire, to exert oneself earnestly, to be dedicated. And that's why I like this the, the flavor that the net translation puts on it, to court. So when you think about um, a man and he's very interested in a woman to get married with her, he will... And he has a positive and intense interest in her. So he pursues her zealously. And so he's saying, these false teachers, they have that kind of relationship with you. They're schmoozing you. They're coming up to you. They're doing everything that they can. They're really interested in getting in with you and being influential with you. But he says, it's not for your good. You need to look out for these folks. They're, They're not in this for the right reasons. They're schmoozing you, but it's for no good purpose. So that's how he characterizes these false teachers, that they're selfish. It's not for the Galatians' good. It's not for Christ's honor because this message of the Judaizers has nothing to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with you need to identify as a Jew and you need to act in every way according to the Jewish law and customs. There's nothing in that about Jesus. Did I say the word Jesus? No. Neither did they. They were not interested in Christ's honor what they were interested in, says Paul, was their own honor. So remember this idea of the competition, the, the game of honor. To, in order for someone to be up, built up, someone else had to be put down. So he says, basically, there's the in crowd of the people of God. And, and the Judaizers had this exclusive mentality towards who's in and who's out. And right now, they're trying to get in with the Galatians and have influence on them. And so if you can think the in crowd is like the cool, cool kids, and they want to get in on the cool kids. But once they get in, they're going to start setting up some norms. OK, you have to look like this. You have to do these certain things. You have to uh, you know, do certain things with your body so that you identify as part of the cool crowd. You have to follow all the rules of the cool crowd. It's very exclusive. It's very oriented around who's in and who's out. Are you in or are you out? And so they want to, they're schmoozing you so that they can get in. Once they're in, then they want to shut you out. And the idea is that if they can clearly demarcate who's in and who's out, then they get to be in charge. They're the ones making the rules. They're the cool kids. They're the winners. You're the losers, says Paul. So if you let them in, Their motivation is their own honor. Their purpose and their means of getting honor is this game of competition. Once they get in with you, they're going to start drawing lines and say, oh, you're not really Jewish enough. You're not really acting Jewish enough. And so you must not be part of the people of God. Jesus, well, I mean, he's he's a nice teacher, and it's nice that you came to believe in God because of him, but really, you have to do these things, and and I get to call the shots, because I'm in now. You're out. And that makes me better than you. Winners and losers. This is not, these are not good people. And that's what this phrase, but for no good purpose, is about. Again, in verse 17, they make much of you. They schmooze you. They court you, but for no good purpose. Then he uses this kind of awkward grammar in verse 18. And I was confused by it at first. I thought, who's he really talking about here? He says, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. And so he uses what we call the passive voice. To, it is good to be made much of. And the subject of who's being made much of is not explicit in that clause. If we change that to the active voice, then try to hear the difference of the nuance. For example, he could have said instead, It is always good when you make much of me for a good purpose, and not only when I am with you. And the nuance there, the point of using the active voice then would be, it's really good for me when you think that I'm awesome. And the point would be his own honor. But that's not what Paul's about. And so he goes out of his way to use clunky grammar uh, to de-emphasize himself and to say, the point is, we have a good relationship. So he is actually talking about their relationship, how he's reflecting back that, uh, that he had shared the gospel with them despite being laid up, and even though they could have despised or scorned him for being weak, for being a loser, for being sick, shameful things in that society, they honored him instead. And he said, this was a good relationship. He's, so he's saying, it's good, it's always good, for us to have this kind of relationship of an open-handed exchange of blessing within the family of God. The point is not Paul's own honor. He's saying we have a good relationship, which means that it's characterized by mutual blessing and that it is Christ-centered. And So he's saying, and I want that to continue right now, even though we're not together. That's what he's saying by the phrase, and not only when I am present with you, He said, guys, remember, we had this great relationship, so let's not let that go. Let's have a relationship where we have mutual blessing of each other and that it's Christ-centered. Here, we're not talking about competing with each other for honor. Who's in? Who's out? Who's cool? Who's not? Who's a winner? Who's a loser? So what is Paul's goal in his relationship with them? Well, firstly, his means and his motive is love. Until now, he's taken a really intense tone with them. Uh, you may remember in, at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And even at the beginning of the letter, where customarily we find out that Paul often says lots of positive things, and often says how he's praying for them, and he gives thanks for these different churches. In this case, in this letter, he skips that part of the passage, and he cuts right to the point and says, I can't believe you are forgetting the main idea, the gospel. How are you rejecting the gospel? So he has taken a really intense tone with them until now. But his heart, as he's talking about in this, in this section, is a heart of love towards them. And that's what he's... That, that, the way he expresses that is with, with the phrase, my little children. Early also... In verse 12 he says, "Brothers, these are terms of affection." Uh, Pastor Mike earlier said that the term "brothers" in Greek literally means "from the same womb." He's saying, he's saying "We're in the same family. We are kinfolk." And then here, I think this phrase in 19 is even more intense: "My little children." Uh, the NIV says, "My dear children." And it's reminiscent of how John addresses people in his letters, and he says, "Little children." And then he goes on to say some strong and encouraging and potent and confrontational truth. This is a a term of affection and care. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So he uses this metaphor of childbirth. And uh, I never have and I never will have the privilege and challenge of going through childbirth being a man. But many of you have, and for that I honor you, because from everything that I understand, it is one of the most painful things that a woman can go through, and it is exhausting. And Paul is leveraging those attributes of childbirth to describe what they're going through right now. For whom I am, again, in the anguish of childbirth, or of labor, until Christ is formed in you. And... He's saying, this is really hard. I love you, my little children. We have this good relationship. I care about you. So it's hard for me to be speaking so intensely. Remember in in verse 16, he said, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Yes, he has hard things to say, but he has hard things to say for their good. That was true when they first met. He spoke the gospel to them for their good. Why would that change now? Maybe this isn't what they want to hear, but his whole heart's desire is for Christ to be formed in you. I want to point out a little word that he throws in there. He says, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. And I think maybe, I, I could be reading into this, but I think he's implying that he already went through this, that, through this the first time. Remember, he was sick. It was probably difficult for him to preach, but this was his heart, and this was his passion. This was his calling on his life. So he eagerly partook in it. So he went through all that hard work and, and the pain of preaching when he was sick, and, and he had the joy of seeing the Galatians come to Christ. And he feels, I shouldn't, we shouldn't be going through this again. You're putting me through this anguish of childbirth again, but that's okay, my little children. Because it's worth it. My goal, my desire is to see Christ formed in you. For you to become Christ-like. For Christ's character to be formed in you. And specifically, that the essence of who the Galatians are, and so we can think about the essence of what God wants for us and what we should want for each other, what I want for you and for what you should want for me, is to become Christ-like. That starts 1st by identifying with Christ, being in Christ. And secondly, by that character of Christ becoming more and more manifested in us. Paul, Paul's desire is for them to be in Christ. Let me take you back to Galatians three twenty six and 28, if you would not even turn back. It's likely on the same page. For in Christ, and I want you to listen for this phrase, in Christ, or in Christ Jesus. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is there's no male and female. For you are all one, In Christ. And so, if we, that being me and every one of you who identifies with Christ, and Paul, and the Galatians, and all the followers of Christ in between, if we are in Christ, and that is the core of who we are, and how do we get there? Simply by trusting Him. Simply by trusting His gift of grace. We don't have to strive, we don't have to do, we don't have to change who we are, humanly speaking, in our you know, ethnic makeup or our specific behaviors in order to become in Christ. First, God changes us. When we trust in him, that is a change at the core of our being. So that when God sees us now, he sees us in Christ. And that makes us unified then with each other. And that's the basis of Paul's appeal to them. We are in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. He says, I'm a Jew. Most of y'all are are Greeks. It doesn't matter. We are in Christ. So his method is love. And his means, as as he uses kind phrases like, my little children... And his purpose is the formation of Christ in them. He goes on to describe another aspect of his relationship with them in verse 20. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. And building off that analogy of in the pains of childbirth, Paul feels that his relationship with the Galatians is parental uh, in, a, in a good way. A good father. A good parent has the desire for his children to become wonderful and fully formed. And if we are godly parents, then our supreme objective in our parenting should be to see Christ formed in our children. And so, as he's continuing in verse 20, he's talking about his tone. So the difficulty of writing the letter to address a situation like this is that Paul can't toggle his dad voice up or down depending on how they're responding. And so when you have when you have toddlers then certain circumstances you you can simply address them with with gentleness and with kindness with a straightforward request or instruction and then when they blow you off you might toggle it up a little bit and use a little bit more intense voice and then in certain circumstances when there's major safety on the line or there's an egregious wrong that your child is about to do, you might need to toggle up the dad voice even more. Now, of course, that should not break into the realm of sinful anger, but Paul has used some really intense language, and so his dad voice has been up. And so he's saying, I want to bring down this dad voice and use a more gentle tone. And actually, he already has, as we mentioned with with. Uh, with using the term brothers or using the phrase my little children he's already bringing back the tone a little bit because he can't help it he cares about these folks he loves them so even as he's bringing the truth hard even as he's speaking so intensely to them he's using a a little bit of a gentler tone with them and this indicates this is a, a feature of of his writing voice that indicates his motive really is loving he he's not really able to maintain a harsh tone. So again, his goal is their Christ-likeness, and it's not to receive validation and acolytes from them as God's messenger. Paul struggles how to deal with this gospel crisis among these new believers, and in the struggle, of course, he's having to write this letter. He says, I wish I was actually with you face-to-face so we could sit down and really have a conversation like we used to. We had this good relationship before, I want to have, sit down and have a good conversation with you, like we used to before. And, and it's better if we're in person. Now, selfishly for all of us, we greatly benefit from this inconvenience to Paul because he had to write this letter, and we get this letter It's part of the Holy Scripture. And we receive this potent missive about the gospel. And in this section, we get a little glimpse of, of their relationship. Mike mentioned this earlier, that he was risking rejection to speak truth that they desperately needed. So even though he's bringing the... the, Those folks, the Judaizers, remember, they're really schmoozing. They're putting in a lot of work to try to get in on the in crowd. And Paul's saying their motives are not good. And he's running from a distance. And he knows that, first of all, there's ways that he can be really clunky In person, and he knows they had a good relationship, but he just doesn't feel that same influence or presence with them to really talk through this issue. And yet, this is an important enough issue that he's toggled up his dad voice, he's brought the truth hard for the good, and he's risking rejection in order to speak the truth to them. It's it's an intense moment. So where do we go from this? What are some applications. We get this glimpse into Paul and the Galatians' relationship. And basically, I want us to think about the way that we relate with each other in the body of Christ. What do you want in your relationships? What do you want out of your relationships? Are your motivations selfish? Are you in the relationship for your own validation, for what the other person can give you? Are you schmoozing the other person and trying to go after them so that they will give you the feedback, the love or the care or the honor or the validation that you're looking for, the significance? Are you on social media in such a way that you're looking for likes and attention, views or sympathy? Are you looking for things from people? Are you trying to get honor or goodness or love? from other people in how your, your approach to relationship. In other words, is your approach to relationships ultimately about yourself and what you can get out of it? Whatever you do is a means of gaining from the other person. Or is your what you want in relationships Christ-focused? In the midst of your relationships, is the attention and honor away from yourself and toward Christ? Remember Paul's awkward Grammar with a passive voice. He goes out of his way to make sure that even though he's talking about the relationship and how they honored him, he's not talking of, he, he's not looking for the honor for them. He's saying, you received me as a messenger of God. That means the message and that God is what's most important. It's your purpose in relationship, not what you can take. Your neediness, what the other person can give back to you to make you feel better about yourself. Is it instead, what, how, what can you do to help Christ be formed in them? How can you serve them with your words and with your deeds to see the full formation of Christ in your brother or sister in Christ? Secondly, we talked about purpose. What is your method in relationship? Are you striving after the person so that they will strive after you? This is very manipulative and I've talked about it a couple times. These were the Judaizers. They were schmoozing them. They were courting them. So are we giving of ourselves and serving and doing and loving so that we can get back the love that we crave so much? And that kind of diagnostic question here could be that the other person, as you progress in relationship, they might ask you, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? You keep coming after me. It seems like super loving at sometimes. It's kind of passive-aggressive at other times. It's like, you're really coming at me like, what do you want from me? And that could be a clue to you if, if someone says that to you. Well, maybe the, your approach to relationship from them is what can you get from them? What do you want from me? Well, maybe maybe you're trying to give so that you can get from them. This is the same kind of... Games that we play with each other. Is relation, are relationships a game or is it an open-handed exchange of blessing within the family of God? I just want to give to you. I just want to see Christ formed in you. I just want to honor you. You are more important than me. Your well-being, your Christ-likeness is the most important thing to me. So that's the, the blessing. And in that exchange of blessing, there's a couple attributes. There's honesty, and there's love. And Paul talked about, have I become your enemy by speaking to you the truth? And love, he's demonstrated love by his affectionate address, my little children and brothers. There's a key person in my life who speaks the truth to me in love on a regular basis. I get to be married to her. And it's such a blessing to have as my closest person in life, my partner in life to be someone who not so much trusts my unconditional acceptance of her, but her unconditional acceptance within Christ. That even if I don't respond well to the truth that she knows I need to hear, she's going to speak it. But also her manner, Rebecca's manner of speaking truth to me, is not to beat me down. Not to exclude me, not to say, I've done this well, you're doing this badly. But her approach is loving. And I trust and I know her goodness towards me in that. Even when I don't like what she has to hear because she's right and I've done wrong, I need to adjust, I know that her heart in it is for my good. And so it's on the basis, it's that same kind of appeal that Paul's making to the Galatians. He's saying, I have that heart towards you. You might not like what I have to hear, but I've always done well by you. You've always done well by me. Let's continue this relationship of speaking the truth and love to each other. So instead of the diagnostic question, what do you want from me? You're coming at me pretty, pretty strong. Like, you're, I feel like you're trying to get something from me. That person that you're in relationship, if they can say, I know what you want for me. If people in your life are saying that to you, When I'm around you, I know what your goal is. And your goal is to see Christ formed in me. And that should be such a comfort and encouragement to you if if you're hearing that from the people in your life. You want your actions, your life, your words in relationships to the people around you to be so oriented that they know everything that Samuel does is for Christ's formation in me. And I can't say that I do that perfectly, but that's the desire. And that's Paul's Purpose. So our heart's desire should be everything that we do, that the the way we speak, the way we speak, and what we speak. People need truth, and they need to hear it in a loving way, and they need to, for the purpose of Christ's formation. So these are the questions that I want us to grapple with: Are my relationships about me and the honor that I can get from the other person, or are they Christ-centered? Do I understand that you and I, whoever the you and I are, that we are in Christ and we, the focus is the honor of him and the formation of him and each other. We have the same goal. That's for you to become more like Christ and that's for me to become more like Christ. That's what I want. That's what you want. Let's grow in him together. And his method, this manipulation, games, games of what do I get? What do you get People sometimes say marriage should be 50, 50, and I disagree. marriage should be a hundred and a hundred that you can't if you're playing 50 50, then who's do, who's doing more 50? You know are you doing your part because I'm doing my part and that's not how we should approach any of our relationships with each other. It should just be I give to you so that Christ is formed in you. That's our desire for each other if um, if anything from the scripture this morning or from the worship has touched your heart and you want to talk to us more or receive prayers, the elders and I will be here to speak with you. And if you would like to learn more about how to become in Christ, to receive this life-changing relationship with Jesus, He will turn your world upside down if you don't know Him. And I want you to know Him. He's the best thing so if you have those questions, the elders and I or anyone else that you know is walking with Christ would be happy to share with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that when you look at us, you see us in Christ. And we are not identified by the goodness or the badness of our behaviors. We're not identified by whatever, whatever other human attributes or or identifying characteristics that we usually grade each other with and say who's in, who's out, who's cool, who's not. And you are impartial and you define righteousness based on Christ alone and that is freely available to us by faith in Christ. What a beautiful gift that that we can receive honor from the only one who counts and that's you. And we don't have to compete for it from each other. That in you... We can be satisfied and filled and from that place we can give to each other an open handed exchange of blessing within the family within your family you've brought us near you and put your spirit within our hearts that cries out Abba Father the spirit of adoption as sons we didn't deserve to be part of your family we didn't deserve for your one and only begotten son to die for us and yet you sent him and he chose to submit so that we could be brought close to you and we could be part of your family. And so I pray, O oh Lord, that as we go forth from here, as we interact with each other within this body and as we seek to share the good news about who you are in, with the lost around us, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would empower us to speak the truth in love, to be wholehearted and genuine and truthful and honest in the way we approach others, to not be striving and manipulative and seeking to... Seeking to see what we can get from Mother and only give as much as serves that purpose of our own glory or our own validation or love or neediness because Lord every need that we truly have you've satisfied for us in Christ we praise you Heavenly Father we worship you Lord Christ in Jesus name Amen